Hey guys, Montel and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today was recently named Cannabis Law Trailblazer by the National Law Journal and has been consistently recognized as one of Denver's top cannabis lawyers for nearly a decade. From 2010 to 2016, he served as one of the nation's first cannabis policy instructors at the University of Denver, where he regularly lectured regarding cannabis topics and led a university-sanctioned research practice concerning the efficacy of marijuana regulation. Given his academic background, he has been asked to work with governments of more than 30 countries around the world on crafting commercial cannabis public policy. He's a Forbes contributor, contributor, speaker, and cannabis media expert, Mr. Robert Hoban. Thanks so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel, sir. Good to be here, Montel. How are you today? I'm doing great, sir. Look, you know, can you give us a little bit about your background, where you're from originally, and where'd you go to school? Yeah. Where'd you go to law school? Yeah, I went to law school, believe it or not, at the University of Wyoming. I'm a Jersey guy. Okay. Grew up in southern New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia. Uh, decided to uh, work for the U.S. government outside out of uh, out of Rutgers. And then uh, I was fancy with the West. I, I climbed mountains. I wanted to climb every mountain in what's called the Wind River Range in central Wyoming. So I ended up in Wyoming working for the government and went to law school out there. Uh, I've been in Denver uh, ever since. Wow. And then when did you become interested in cannabis law and policy and Give us a little story. Uh, 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 your mother kind of got you into this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer oh my goodness. Um, many years ago, and uh, she was told she had six months to live. Uh, she lived in New Jersey. I had two young kids at the time. They were young at the time. And uh, we ultimately moved her out here. And every morning, my job was to make sure that we were charting all the, the, the whole pill regimen uh, that I know you are familiar with in terms of uh, chemotherapy and otherwise. And as I sat across from her one morning, sat across the kitchen table, and this was uh, the days of blackberries. I remember looking at my mm. blackberry and I looked across the table. And as my mom was taking uh, one of the pills to her mouth, I saw drool come out of her mouth. And I looked up and it really, really hit me hard in the stomach. It was just, it was not a situation I wanted to see. I knew uh, that my mom was dependent on this medication and it was not good medication. It was, it was moody. It was, it was not, not something that, uh, it's not, not a quality of life for anybody. I'm sorry. So I'm sorry. Yeah. Day, mm -hmm. just tried to, to, to help her. And, uh, ultimately being no stranger to cannabis was one thing, but getting my mother to, to consider it as an option was a whole nother thing. So that's, uh, that's how I got into the cannabis industry, so to speak, because some of my mother's caregivers, uh, which, by the way, she lived for three years with uh, with pancreatic cancer. And when we, you know, uh, stop you there for just a second, because a lot yeah. of people don't know that last year, I think it was maybe January of last year, it was a study in Australia that um, actually came out and indicated that there are particular combinations of minor cannabinoids along with THC that seem to disrupt the actual growth of pancreatic cancer. This is something that's been written about now multiple times since then. So you were in a, you were early on the track. Yeah, definitely, definitely early on that. And, you know, at that point in time, it was really about pain relief and just attitude adjustment for the day, right? And elimination of nausea, because you can't take a pill unless you have food in your stomach, can't eat food if you don't feel good. So that was the catch 22 we were in. And, you know, I tell you what, uh, those uh, two and a half of those three years, no opiate, no opiates at all. And uh, her quality of life was really, really high. Ultimately, the cancer did get her. Uh, but uh, that's the way, unfortunately, sometimes it goes. But uh, that was my 
uh, entree, if you will, into the practice of law in the cannabis industry because uh, I started working with uh, and opened up some of the first dispensaries in Denver uh, and, uh, you know, began a law firm that was uh, the first uh, law firm to focus purely on cannabis uh, and expand nationally. Wow. Now, were you a adult use cannabis user before that experience? Correct. Correct. Uh, I, I, I've got a, my own history with cannabis, uh, you know, some of which I, as a as a younger man, I toured uh, with the Grateful Dead of all of all bands. Uh, and uh, there's there's a there's an element of cannabis use in that whole thing. Yeah. And uh, that was ultimately just a little element of that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, cool. So but then, you know, you understood that, you know, uh, other than for adult use, there's also some medical ramifications, right? Hundred percent, and you know what, what you just mentioned about pancreatic cancer and some of the studies that come out. Boy, I wish we had that. I had even a fraction of the understanding that I have today about the science, and that the science was advanced and out there at that point in time. Because, like I said, all we really knew about at that time was pain relief, uh, attitude adjustment, and uh, and really just uh, elimination of nausea. But to understand these cancer curing properties that shrink tumors. Uh, that have been studied by so many people around the world, not the least of which is Christina Sanchez in Spain. Uh, it is remarkable. And it's unfortunate that still today, people don't know enough about the scientific and medical benefits of the plant, even though we talk about medical marijuana nearly every single day. And, you know, I mean, with, uh, just to echo what you were just saying, it's kind of crazy how right now, I mean, we know for a fact that in the last 10 years, there's been well over 38,000 peer-reviewed published documents on cannabis and its efficaciousness as a medical agent, 3,500 of which were published in 2021. There are another 3,500 that will probably be published by the end of this year. Um, so, you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, I wish there was just more information. Stop. There's more information published on cannabis right now than has been on any other drug available to mankind, including aspirin. So, you know, um, and some of the breakthroughs that have been coming out recently are, are staggering. So I just don't understand why, you know, we just can't get beyond this federal, you know, prohibition and get to actually practicing. good. They're going to approve uh, psychedelics for use by doctors before they approve cannabis, which is just boggles the mind. Not that there is not efficaciousness in psychedelics. But Correct. just a mindset that just blows me out the door. Um, how, how you can leapfrog the cannabis plant and its therapeutic benefits uh, and, and just ignore it and then foster the other one. Like I said, I agree with you. I, I it. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. Well, look, I've been a cannabis advocate for uh, by 23 years now, and a lot's changed in that time. But we still do have a lot of work to do. What's your opinion, you know, uh, about most uh, what's most important right now in considerations about the continued growth and success of this industry. Well, listen, uh, we're, we're at a point in time where these companies all build up and remember they build up state by state by state. So you had to build a supply chain in each state and get it to start functioning state by state because of federal legality. We still have That's to do that. Yep. Yeah, you still we still have to do that. And that's a challenge. And that's why the rest of the world, I work internationally quite a bit. The international community, it's so much easier to conduct business. There's international transactions happening every day, but that's a large part of it. So you had to recreate the wheel, so to speak, in every single state if you were a multi-state operator or a participant in multiple states. And that creates inefficiencies. I mean, think about it this way. You have to have 
the same number of jobs in every state based on population instead of having some efficiency where you have uh, some sort of regional cultivation or extraction facility and then you're shipping all those wares out into the marketplace in multiple states. So it's really, really inefficient. And furthermore, the taxation problems really really hamstring the industry in that most of these guys, their hands are tied behind their back because they're being taxed um, without any ability to deduct most expenses like ordinary businesses. So that that cramps its style. But the other thing we understand is, you know, during COVID, the numbers uh, increased dramatically when everybody was home. People oh. were using cannabis. They had expendable income because of government subsidies and, and the inability to get evicted if you didn't pay your rent. Um, those days are over and uh, cannabis use is suffering accordingly. Um, but the other thing that I would say is this is not un not not unique to this industry. It's a brand new industry. There's no central clearinghouse. There's no centralized location to get information. So everybody that's out there trying to build the biggest, greatest extraction, cultivation or retail establishment, they're doing it without any sort of context. They're going to do their thing. And guess what? There's 10 other people doing the exact same thing. And if they all come online around the same time, then you just created a saturated marketplace. And that's ultimately what's occurring well let's take these things apart uh, like individual i mean what do you what, being in, uh, in the legal process behind this when do you think that we're going to get to a point where at least states start doing what the federal government should be doing i mean you know the fact that you can't really cross state lines is that really a federal law is that state laws prohibiting state-to-state -state commerce interaction that's federal law. So fe federal law, you know, classifies marijuana. Anything above 0.3% THC content is a marijuana plant under federal law. You, that's an illegal, a Schedule One controlled substance. You can't bring that across state lines unless you have a DEA registration, which are few and far between and has nothing to do with the adult use complex. That has to do with a pharmaceutical complex for drug research and drug development. Uh, and those DEA licenses, as I point out for cannabis, they are really few and far between. But look what California did recently. Recently, California paved the path with a state law that says we're going to allow for exports from our state to other states. They haven't done it yet, but they started to put the wheels in motion. And it does present an interesting, really detail oriented legal analysis about whether or not um, you can cross state lines, even if something's federally illegal and whether states have those rights. So stay tuned for that, because I tell you what, if uh, if Biden hadn't won this election, um, I think we would see California doing business with states like New Jersey, perhaps other blue states uh, under this 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 program just to see what the federal government would do. Well, you know, it's really interesting, though, because now if, in fact, the federal government can prohibit interstate commerce for cannabis, the federal government then turned around and passed a law for hemp, but they still prohibit some interstate commerce for hemp. Um, well, th that's that's on the states. Yeah, so that okay. one's on the states. The federal law does make it crystal clear that hemp is not a controlled substance, nor are any of its derivatives. And I stress any of its derivatives. And that's a controversial topic. But there was a part in that 2018 farm bill that talked about you can't interfere with interstate commerce. So different states like Idaho, for example, some parts of Texas, some of these more conservative political states that you can imagine, they were looking at blocking hemp shipments because not because it was it wasn't it wasn't plant material. These were extracts. And they're saying, well, there's THC in these extracts. You're not allowed to have that. 
That's not true. That's not what the Farm Bill says. So there's a whole lot of confusion across the country. And some of the states have blocked that transport, not necessarily the federal government. Well, when do we think that the states will let's just start with hemp? I mean, what's ridiculous, I happen to have product in the marketplace of Massachusetts. And I know for a fact that Massachusetts will not allow hemp products from California or anyplace else brought into the state, utilized in any of their products that are cannabis or hemp related. Um, and several other states are doing the same thing. That, that just to me, it's so contrary and I get what you're saying about the fact that, you know, you can't have anything but 0.3% THC. However, even when we have extracts that are clear, like CBDA, that's been extracted from, let's say, a hemp plant that has actually proven to be less than 0.3% THC, full extraction, other states won't allow you to import that in. It, it's it's ridiculous to me. I mean, when, when do you think we're going to see some movement right there? Let's well, do what's already legal. Yeah, that well, that's because the FDA hasn't done anything about this yet. If the FDA regulated the standards, the safety, consumer protection measures surrounding uh, hemp extracts, then you would see more interstate commerce being allowed. But instead, the states had to fill the void. I wrote the policy in Colorado, which was the first policy we call the hemp foods policy. Many states have followed it and copied that language where they treat the hemp extracts like a food ingredient, like any other food ingredient, so long as the THC content's not that high. So it's really the FDA and the lack of action by the FDA that created that problem. But then you talk about these intoxicating compounds that come from the plant. This is why I suggest, by the way, the most sweeping federal cannabis policy reform in U.S. history was done by none other than Mitch McConnell, conservative Republican Mitch McConnell. But most people don't even understand why. Why? Because Mitch McConnell represents Kentucky. And why? Because yeah. Kentucky and the cornbread mafia is where one of the biggest cannabis busts in the history of America took place. It wasn't up in Humboldt County. It wasn't up in Northern California. The middle of this country used to produce more cannabis than any other area of the United States back in Correct. the late 60s and mid 60s. And a lot of people don't know that. It was Kentucky, Tennessee, and those places like that where farmers were hiding plants in between you know, rows of their uh, corn or in between rows of some of their um, soybean plants, even though yeah, it's kind of hard to, to hide <laughs> cannabis in soybean, but there were farmers down there trying to do it. And we know for a fact that a lot of the, hemp, the cannabis that was delivered here in the United States back in the late 60s came from that area of the country. So of course, mm -hmm. Mr. McConnell was going to support hemp growth in his state. He wanted to make sure his farmers, you know, got off his back and reelected him again. That's right. Well, and remember, Kentucky was the leading hemp producer when hemp really was the second largest cash crop in America back in the day, being used for other than extractable purposes like rope and fiber, yes. uh, you know, potentially the building blocks for fuel. In fact, hemp fuel was was used to power some of the early Ford vehicles, the Tesla. Absolutely. I mean, most, most people in this country don't even know when you said second back, if you go back to like 1690, the number one cash number crop one. in America and one yep. for about 100 years years. Most people don't know. Every sale, every rope, most of clothing, the entire revolutionary army was clothed in hemp fiber. The only thing that the North and the South had in common was about 90% of them were clothed in hemp fiber. It wasn't cotton. It was hemp. Why? Because hemp stands up under, it doesn't dry rot on your body. It gets wet. So people don't even get that, understand that. But let's, 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 let's jump back now, back up 300 years this way. I mean, right. we're sitting at a time where Hemp could be such an important, if we just got out of the ignorant stage and got back to the realization that hemp, number one, is one of the best sequesterers of CO2 of any plant 
out here. It's not the big trees. It's hemp. If we were growing big, massive fields of, of, of hemp or covering the buildings, all of our parking structures and some of our government buildings, covering them with vines of hemp, we could actually sequester some of the CO2 from our automobiles that are driving down the street. That's right. No, so, but remember, so when they passed the, the farm bill the first time around, 2014, they were thinking about those types of things. They were thinking about fuel and truly industrial uses. But what happened? They had this burgeoning marijuana industry state by state. You had extraction equipment. So they started to extract CBD. I represented some of the first CBD companies in the United States uh, out of San Diego, California. This was you know, 10, 11 years ago. And I sued the DEA in 2016. And we got the favorable result where the court in the Ninth Circuit interpreted the, the farm bill from 2014 to say there were not restrictions to selling this. And it was considered legal and no longer a controlled substance. So it took the DEA a while to understand that as well. But this is the this is both the blessing and the curse of American innovation, right? You have American innovators that look at this plant and say, what can we do with it? Rope, grain, fuel, fiber, all great things, but I can make a heck of a lot more money per unit if I create something that produces a benefit for a human being. And that's where this went. And that's why some of the conservative lawmakers, the McConnell camp, if you will, they might feel like they had the wool pulled over their eyes when that initial legislation was passed. And some of the states feel the same way. That's kind of why you see this backlash. And frankly, that's why you see a little bit of the, the butting of the heads between the marijuana side of the industry and the hemp side of the industry. And we represent both about 50% each way. And we see that battle going on all the time. It shouldn't really be a battle, Montel. It's all cannabis. Absolutely. It all, it's all cannabis. And at the same time, I mean, where you're talking about the different uses, we know that the cannabis plant, the hemp plant, there's probably 2,500 different usages for that plant. If we just really started to capitalize on the fact that I, I recently, I, I know I've been involved with a company out of South America that's going to be uh, using uh, hemp fiber for plastics. There's hemp fiber that can be used if you burn it into a graphene. It has a better electrical storage capability than graphite. We don't even know that. The hemp could be the answer to some of our battery issues because the weight is different. It's so much lighter. I mean, you know, we could be actually storing more electricity that way than going down this lithium path that we're going on and continuing to contaminate the planet. Believe it or not, years ago, uh, one of the first seed deals, I, when, when the 2014 Farm Bill was passed, we started to import airplanes full of hemp seeds into the United States, quite literally, because there were no hemp seeds in the United States. We went to the Ukrainian Hemp Institute of all places because it's one of the longest standing hemp institutes in the world, and they built me a bike. That bike was powered by a supercapacitor made with hemp graphene to demonstrate the point you just made. It charged in like 20 minutes and deployed that energy over five or six or seven hours. So that's just something we haven't even begun to tap yet in terms of the benefit of hemp. And people think about hemp as, well, what part of the cannabis plant is that? It's, it's not quite that way. And people, that stigma continues on. It really does. Absolutely. And, and also, most people don't know that, you know, uh, in Ukraine, Chernobyl, um, which is really right on the border, but, you know, they've been using hemp to actually um, leach the, the radiotoxins, radioactive toxins out of the soil. If we were using hemp right now here in the United States, all farmers were using it the way they did back in the 16, late 1600s, early 1700s. You'd be growing a row of hemp right beside your corn row. Why? Because it leaches the toxins out of the soil. Um, and doesn't require you having to then go over and turn the soil over as hard as we've had to before, or we continue to have to now. So, yeah, I'm with you with that. But it, but but when do you think? <laughs> I think if we solve the problem of hemp, then we could possibly be on the right track to solve the problem 
of cannabis, or do you agree? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think it's right. But but look, here's here's the deal: unless you're selling a marijuana flower, and I'll use the word marijuana, even though it's got the stigma mm-hmm. attached to it, just because it's the legal term. And I, I I see the industry as the cannabis industry. It's got two sectors: hemp and marijuana yeah. legally. On the on the on the the marijuana side, you really don't need marijuana except if you're going to smoke that flower with that high THC percentage, or if you're going to distill an oil from that plant. Otherwise, hemp has all of the same compounds. Compounds. Do you know how much, um, if I grow one acre of hemp, I get 10 to 12 metric tons of biomass. If I grow 100 acres of hemp, multiply that. 0.3% of that tons of biomass is THC. That's legal. That is enough THC to satisfy Pfizer's research agenda for an entire year. It's enough THC to create formulations to go out into the marketplace. Yeah, it's not naturally in the state because they're looking at reformulating those things, which is the benefit of marijuana, uh, which I don't dispute for a minute. But I think the supply chain globally is built around hemp because it's less regulated. It's easier to grow. It requires less water and it has all the same things as the marijuana plant. It just has them in different ratios. Absolutely. And and the way we our extraction techniques allow us to take as much of that together, put it together in the same bile, if you will, or bottle, if you will, and create the exact same outcomes. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. What do you think some of the regulations are? Uh, that you believe are really crippling the industry right now and should change? Well, first and foremost, you've got the fact that companies don't have the right to uh, file for bankruptcy. That's changing slightly. So bankruptcy protection, believe it or not, doesn't mean a company is just going to disappear and wither away. It gives creditors and it gives lenders additional options in the event that a company goes under. Uh, and it creates a managed process for the winding down of those assets. That needs to change. There's talk about that happening in DC this year. Otherwise, receiverships, which we do a lot of and have done a lot of in the space, reorganizations, if you will, um, reworking of assets, that needs to change. 280E needs to be reformed. You need to figure out a way to stop treating taxable cogent commercial enterprises like their criminal enterprises uh, because 280E was was crafted uh, to battle the cocaine trade in the late 70s and the early 80s in terms of taxation and just to give the IRS a way to uh, to nab these people, so to speak. I think the state regulations need to be re-examined. The dispensary model is an overtaxed, overregulated model that's now, Montel, 10 years old. 10 years old in the cannabis industry is like 70 years. It's like dog years. Um, I can I can tell you some of the lines in my face for the last 14 years indicate that, but that's something that we need to reevaluate, especially when you're looking at intoxicating compounds in different ratios coming out of a federally legal plant. How does all of this jive together? So that's something that we need to re-examine because charging someone millions of dollars for a license uh, and having them operate one store and keeping everything else sequestered or requiring vertical integration uh, at the outset, these are problems that overregulation has created. It was a necessary deal to get the industry started, but at the end of the day, I think the model has changed. And from a public policy standpoint, we need to start thinking about cannabis as being the regulated plant and regulate the uses and its outlets of distribution, not maintaining this hard line between hemp and marijuana. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that's so crazy is that you know the the, the taxation um, of these products, especially from the consumer standpoint, this is all it's passed down to the consumer. It's ridiculous. That's the reason why we know that in 2021, you know, uh, the legal cannabis market sold 25 billion dollars worth of product in the United States. But we know that the black and gray market probably sold another 50 billion. So that's $75 billion worth of an industry, making it one of the biggest industries in America. 
You know, there was more job growth in the cannabis industry than there was in any other vertical in the United States in 2021. But most people yeah. don't know that. And I think it's part of that. It's part of the problem of our industry. And we do a great job of, of, of educating from B to B. We do a really piss poor job of educating from B to C. You know, we don't let the consumers know what's going on. If more and more we would educate the consumers, I think the consumers would demand more. Same way as why does farm spend so much money educating the consumers all day long? Every time you turn on the television, there's a new pharmaceutical drug that's being shoved down your throat. Not so that you can run to, to, to uh, let's say, CBS or someplace and say, can I have that? No. So you can run to your doctor and say, do you know about this? Then the doctor says, oh, yeah, I got some samples right here. Take those home. Right. They get you addicted right. to them. You see what I mean? So, I mean, why? Are, and again, part of this is the problem that we have in the interpretation of the individual state laws of marketing. Not one of those state laws prohibits education on cannabis. So if we were to go brand neutral in educating and doing public service announcements to the public talking about the validity of cannabis and some of these 3,500, 35,000 peer-reviewed studies that are out there, not saying that we've proven that this is an outcome if you use it, but there is research that says, boom, we're researching, look at this research paper that came out of Australia that says that cannabis seems to have, seems to have a really efficacious effect against pancreatic cancer for the following reasons. That's mm -hmm. enough information for a person who has pancreatic cancer or is dealing with it with their family to say, hmm, let me go down there. They didn't say it cured it. They just said may have impact. So why not do that? But we spend more time collecting profits and trying to buy boats and cars rather than we do educating the masses. Well, but think about the cannabis education for a second. First of all, doctors don't learn about the endocannabinoid system right. in medical school. Right. That's changing. Yeah, it's changing, cool. but they don't. Yeah, very so, cool. I, I mean, even my own doctor, I got an annual physical a couple of weeks ago, and he told me, he says, look, he says, uh, I, you know, I, I know what you do for a living. I talked to some of the other folks in this office. He says, I don't like the idea of calling it medical cannabis. Why is it medical? And we had this thing because he didn't learn about it. He didn't know what the endocannabinoid system was. But then think about the other element of education that comes from state funded programs funded by tax dollars from purchases. So even in Colorado, where we had a progressive governor, we have a progressive governor now, but Hickenlooper, the first governor that oversaw this, what he did was he, he spent dollars from tax revenue to say, don't be a lab rat. They literally put cages on the streets of Denver saying, don't be a lab rat. In other words, don't start using marijuana when you don't, we don't know what it's going to be about, what's going to happen to you. That's the wrong message, the, the wrong message. So the government needs to recalibrate how it communicates these issues as a public health issue, as a decriminalization issue, as, a, as, an, issue as an organization that owns its own patent on cannabis. Yes. Which is really yes. even more ridiculous. Most, most people don't understand that you, your tax dollars were being spent in the late 80s, mid 80s and 90s, re funding research in Israel and places around the world, Canada and Israel, funding research for cannabis, identifying some of the things that are breakthrough science that we now read about all the time. That even figuring out that there's an endocannabinoid system, we paid for that. And people yep. don't know that. I visited Dr. Mishulam's office in uh, uh, Haifa back in 2000, like it was 2010. And, you know, most people don't know that part of the funding that went through Israel for all that research came from us. Yep. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think in some ways 
we can be our, our worst nightmares, the industry itself, especially when it comes to, you know, two years ago, I was literally on my high horse saying, I'm telling you, man, stop this Delta 8 bullshit. Stop it. Everybody's going, no, 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 Delta 8. No, so I stop it because the second you keep, the longer you put this out, the DEA is going to come down on your head. And what did they do last week? Well, last week, the DEA, so this is an important thing because the headlines tell a different story than what happened. What happened is the federal government, the DEA said only THCO, not Delta 8. Delta, it had a chance to talk about Delta 8. It didn't talk about Delta 8. It said THCO is a an analog. It's a chemical synthetic substance. So the THCO was the only thing that the DEA commented on. It could have said all synthesized or isomerized compounds from hemp. It didn't because the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in, in California has already said that Delta-8 and those compounds comfortably, quote unquote, fit within the definition of industrial hemp derivatives. So we're just talking about THCO. Why? Because it doesn't exist in nature. Delta-8 does exist in nature, just in de minimis quantities. Right, right, right. You know, it's very so, weird because I got this article. Wait a minute, let me pull this up because I have an article. Uh, keep keep talking. Wait, I got an article that, yeah. that talked about no, no, so, so, but, but the point is, it was Delta-8 and Delta-9 THCO that they were talking about. And that's the only thing they commented on. Uh, and, that's, and that's an important distinction because not everybody looks at that. Everybody does think that Delta-8 is always being produced in a basement or a bathtub. And many times it is. So that's the problem. It needs to be regulated if we're going to allow it. And guess what, Montel? Guess what states regulate it? Red states. Hey, wait a minute. That's let, me, red state weed. let me spin this around. Can you see that? Can you see my screen? Yeah. Right, yes. This is an article that came up. I, somebody sent this to me almost. Right DEA classifies novel cannabinoids Delta 8 and 9 THCO. THCO being the key A's concept there. Controlled substances, even when synthesized from hemp. So, so it's because THCO doesn't exist in nature, Delta 8, Delta 9 do. Um, so it's just about that. That's why I say the headlines don't tell the whole story. If you read the letter, it's just about THCO, which can be derived from D8 and D9. So they're um, lying. So th this article here is a bald faced lie. Correct. This article that I, I have says that um, they say that two cannabinoids have emerged in state markets that do not meet federal uh, definition of legal hemp and therefore considered controlled substances. This one says Attorney Rod Knight. Uh, inquired about legal status of Delta-8 THCO and Delta-9 THCO with federal agency last year and followed up early this month. And it goes on to say the DEA has uh, sent a response letter on Monday saying that the two cannabinoids do not occur naturally. So this, I, and when I read this, I said the same thing. So a friend of mine said, you know what? I don't understand this because Delta-8 does occur naturally. It's just in such mm -hmm. small amounts that that's the reason why People have been using CBD to push it into Delta-8. But I'm wrong with that then, right? So Delta-8. Well, right. Okay. Just THCO. But again, that, 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 but it's Delta-8 or Delta-9 THCO that they're talking about, um, which is a synthesized. Because I don't, I don't need to derive that from hemp. I put some chemicals into a lab and I create that. And that's the problem. That doesn't exist in nature. And this is the first time, by the way, that we've really seen something called the Analog Act applied. Think of like bath salts and spice. Remember yeah, those remember things spice that, and that crap? Yeah, they, yeah. they tried to apply it then, did they? No, no, no. 
well, they did apply it then and they applied it properly so in that context. In this context, we've been waiting for them to try to do it. Frankly, I'm surprised they haven't even tried to do it with CBD back in the day or in the early days because they didn't understand it well enough, even though I don't think it would have stuck. But right now, THCO is really the compound because if you're selling THCO, it doesn't exist in nature. It produces an intoxicating effect. That's a federal analog, same thing as a controlled substance. Yeah, you know, I mean, what's really crazy, Robert, is that I literally, I'm telling you, I probably had 20 discussions about that article that I saw and a couple of other articles like that, because literally, I guess the journalists took a little license that they should not have taken. THC-8 is not considered one of these compounds, right? It, it, THC-8 should still be, so we could still see THC-8 in gas stations. Yeah, you'll, you'll see Delta 8, you'll see Delta 9 in gas stations. And, and by the way, where I was going with this is, guess who likes these products? Guess what states probably aren't going to have dispensaries? I call Delta 8, Delta 10, HHC. This is red state weed. Montel, if you go to Nashville, Tennessee, it is the freest yep. cannabis market in the entire country. Dab bars, dispensaries, restaurants where you can get infused uh, 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 meals. And it's not over-regulated and it's all hemp-derived. So this is a, a, a policy and a, and, a, and a thing that's happening. And by the way, as I mentioned, uh, the federal court out of California has indicated that Delta-8 does fit, quote-unquote, comfortably under the definition of a, an industrial hemp derivative. So this is about THCO only. Uh, and I think that there's wishful thinking on many people's parts that D8 would go away because of the concerns. Same concerns I have about an unregulated product. But I do believe from a legality standpoint, it fits under that definition found in the farm bill. Wow. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I need to correct myself because I've been understanding people that, uh, you know, I, I thought that even even taking Delta 8 and using CBD to push it into Delta 8, that's still legal? That's that's legal. That's a hemp derivative. Now, the FDA could step up and the FDA could say that the process or the residual compounds found in that Delta 8 are not permitted. But the, the FDA doesn't move very quickly at all, ever. And it's certainly not moving uh, very quickly here. So states have been left to fill the void. Like, for example, in my state of Colorado, where I'm sitting right now, uh, we have the largest Delta 8 manufacturing complex in the country. I have 20 clients that generate $1.5 billion annually exporting to legal markets across the world that sell these products, but they don't allow the retail goods to be sold because it competes with the marijuana industry. So that's kind of the conundrum. And, and these are the issues. Just yesterday, the state of Arizona passed a bill, not a law, but a bill that would indicate that these compounds should be allowed to be sold and setting forth the standards under which they can be sold. It's a different kind of consumer. It's a different kind of um, extract. And frankly, I don't see that it goes away unless the federal government's farm bill language this year, as it gets renewed, um, says none of these co intoxicating compounds can be sold, uh, which I'm not so sure that that's going to happen because that stunts the growth of farmers. And the Ag uh, Commissioner and, and the Department of Ag, they're not in favor of limiting what farmers can do uh, on the hemp side. Wow. Well, you know, it's very interesting. You were talking about Tennessee, the state of Tennessee. My ex, my, my wife, my current wife is from Tennessee. So we get down there quite often. And I got to tell you something, even though regular cannabis is supposed to be illegal, it's everywhere. You can find it anywhere you want to go find it. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. crazy. So, I mean, I, I, I was wondering what took the Fed so long to step in. And what people have to know is that the DEA doesn't make laws. They just pass regulations. The Congress has to make the law. So, 
even though their regulation was they think is this XYZ. Right. Right. By law, really, even THCO can't be taken off the shelves until Congress acts, right? Well, technically, but but I, I think the line is in the sand. If you're going to sell THCO in this day, if you're going to make it and sell it, you're running the list of, of selling unequivocally, or at least you're going to get arrested by somebody at some point for selling a controlled substance because it's an analog of a controlled substance. And that's the biggest risk. Uh, and that's a whole nother topic for another day. But analogs generally are synthetic compounds that mimic the effects of controlled substances. And, and in this case, when we're talking about cannabis, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, or, or hemp, that's one of the things that I think consumer beware because, you know, analogs, if they are synthetic, we don't know whether or not there's not been enough research done to see what part of the endocannabinoid system actually is agonized by that. We don't know whether or not it's literally even being absorbed by the same CB1, CB2 uh, uh, receptors, right? Right. And, and what about the residual solvents? I mean, the marijuana industry has got a good done a good job of creating standards where there's not residual solvents in the consumable products on the on the THC side of the business. We don't know about that because there are no national standards that are applied right now to a federally legal extract from the hemp plant. And that that's concerning. So we're leading the, 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 the charge in many states to try to insist upon regulation, not banning these compounds because they're just going to be sold anyway, but you might as well regulate it and make sure that that person consuming a Delta-8 or an HHC compound, that it's not going to you know, destroy their liver or you know, cause some sort of cancer that we don't know about because of compounds or isomers that are in there that just haven't been identified or studied well enough right now. And that's really the problem. And you know, that's a problem with all of these, all of these things. But this this is where the marijuana industry says, well, hemp producers, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, and then the hemp producers are pointing the finger back and saying, but you're completely federally illegal and none of that is productive. Right, 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 right. And I've also heard in recent days that, you know, uh, even the DEA kind of for a second tried to step in and regulate like CBDA, some of the acid versions of the, the uh, mitocannabinoids that actually do exist in the plant. And they then got shut down saying, you can't stop the sale of CBDA, right? Right. Well, but, but listen, so, 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 so the DEA has changed their position on CBD, particularly over time. When I took the DEA to court in 2016, it was because they were saying CBD. CBD is a scheduled substance. Montel, CBD is not scheduled anywhere. It's nowhere right. to be found. The only way it could be a scheduled substance is if it's derived from a scheduled substance. So they said, well, it has to come from marijuana. It's the only place where there's enough cannabinoids uh, to, to produce high quantities of CBD. We said, no, federal government, you just legalized hemp. You have CBD in high quantities in hemp. They're being harvested at 0.3% or below. And those derivatives are legal because of federal law. That's, that's in, it's in effect right now. So they changed their rhetoric. You don't hear the DEA talking about CBD being a controlled substance anymore because it's not, unless, of course, it was derived straight from a marijuana plant, which is how it was early in the day. And, you know, think about controlled substances, too. Um, uh, Jazz Pharmaceutical bought uh, uh, GW Pharma back in the day. GW produced their CBD from marijuana because that's all they could do at the time. It was subsequently later that the U.S. passed this sweeping hemp bill. And now you've got those compounds that can come from a legal plant, not an illegal plant. And, but now, again, if you're just extracting the CBD and the isolate doesn't have any THC, why would that be illegal coming from a marijuana plant? I don't understand. 
Well, it's some. It's a notion called the source rule. The source of the of the cannabinoid dictates its legality, not because of science, but because of our silly laws and that vast distinction between hemp and marijuana. So, delta nine that comes from a hemp plant, not a controlled substance. Delta nine that comes from a, a, a marijuana plant, a controlled substance. I, I, you know, and and what's so ignorant about this is that we all know that. It's the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. But, right. but but this is the beauty of working federal policy internationally is there's less of a distinction between hemp and marijuana. We're really just looking at hemp plants or we're looking at cannabis plants, pardon me, that have either high high potency of intoxicating compounds or low potency. But it's all treated the same and it's regulated at the use level, not at the cultivation level. And that's an important distinction. And I think you'll continue to see those lines blurred, which is why I say it's time for us to re-examine the dispensary model, not because it's completely broken, but because the rest of the world's leading the way in the face of federal illegality in the U.S. And that, that way is being led with less of a distinction between the two sides of the industry. And just so people who are watching and tuning in right now need to understand, I mean, places like Colombia, Chile, uh, Uruguay, uh, Isle of Man, Spain, Germany, South Africa. I mean, cannabis is is booming now around the world. People need to understand that, don't they? They do. They do. Thailand, of all places, Thailand, a conservative right. Southeast Asian nation that was giving away marijuana plants, albeit not high quality genetics. But that's not the, that's not the point. The point is they legalized marijuana for certain purposes and gave its citizens plants. Um, this is happening. And the fact that we can sit here in the U.S. and, and sort of say, oh, hold our, our head, our nose high at marijuana and say, oh, I don't know about that yet. Uh, we don't know about the science and we don't know. The rest of the world is moving forward on this, whether we like it or not. And the time has come for us to really pay attention to it and to do something progressive, because if the U.S. does it for better or for worse, the rest of the world tends to follow. And we've got this and we should be leaders on this topic. Uh, and we are in terms of consumers and, and innovation in terms of product development, but not in terms of cannabis policy. Well, you said we are in terms of consumers. Well, we are right now. We got 340 million people in this country, but very soon, I think we're going to start to see around the world, and we're already seeing it around the world, that more and more countries are starting to understand the efficaciousness of using cannabinoids versus buying some of those other very expensive U.S. pharmaceuticals. So they're saying, hmm, Israel right now, you know, in Israel, it's considered a geriatric drug. You know, you turn, what is it, 65, you can walk in the hospital, show them your, your driver's license, and they'll give you, you know, an eighth, you know, just to start off with. And then your doctor writes your description and you go back and get it more. And, and the pricing is like, you know, a tenth of what we pay here. Yeah, well, and think about countries with nationalized healthcare systems, particularly Latin American countries. Do you want to keep prescribing pain pills or opiates to people that cost a bunch of money and create addiction or dependency issues? Or do you want to say as a particular country's health agency told me directly, even if it's a placebo effect, it saves us money and it provides a benefit to the people. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit, let's talk a little bit about the, the importance of cannabis education. You know, again, I talked about the fact that again, our industry here in the United States, we do, I think a fairly decent job B2B. We do, I think an absolutely ridiculously piss poor job when it comes to B2C. I mean, there's there's so many, especially with our aging population, our baby boomer population, which I'm part of, um, 
you know, baby boomers could so well benefit from cannabis. We've seen it around the world, other places, but we aren't actually going after. And I think I know a lot of the reasons is because people say, well, you're not allowed to advertise. You're not allowed to advertise a brand, but you are allowed to discuss and educate. You know, more of the, some of that $25 billion. And let's say, okay, let's throw it up. 20% of that went to taxes. So $20 billion worth of, of the cannabis revenue that came in through the legal market was used to turn around and do, you know, uh, 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 educational public service announcements. I think you would find that this industry would grow so much quicker than it is right now. Yeah, I, I think cannabis education that's focused on science and medicine and frankly, the marketplace, I think investors, the investment community needs to better understand what they're investing in. But too much of the cannabis education content has to do with, well, here's how you can grow in your basement, or here's how you can extract at home. And there's nothing wrong with that, that kind of content. That's important stuff as well, particularly how to do those things effectively and safely. But at the same time, how do you create a, a notion? How do you provide uh, leadership that's trusted to lead the way and present those discussions. Unfortunately, with public education campaigns, those come from uh, from politicians or from, from state governments, and those are limited because they don't want to encourage more people to use cannabis unless there's leadership at the top of that organization where that leadership is educated themselves about the benefits of, of cannabis. I mean, remember, we couldn't even talk about cannabis until Sanjay Gupta on CNN basically turned the, 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 the thing around and said, I... There is benefit to this. And then it wait, wait, you know, wait, a lot of, lot of, let me just let me jump in with that. A lot of people don't know. I called Sanjay out on Pierce Morgan six months before he did his first special. Sanjay and I were on Pierce Morgan. I brought up cannabis. Sanjay was against cannabis. Yes. hundred percent against it. And I said, excuse me, how the hell can you have an attitude? You're a doctor and you don't even know that our federal government has a, a, a patent on cannabinoids. Did you right. know that? And he was like, huh? I said, yeah. And then I went back on Sanjay Gupta. I mean, went back on Pierce Morgan before Pierce Morgan went to Europe and left the United States. I went back on Pierce Morgan with Sanjay and Sanjay apologized for me for having the attitude about cannabis that he had before he did his very first special. Well, first of all, th thank you for bringing that up and, and sort of prompting that. And, and by the way, how fast did it happen when you brought the when you brought the facts to light? It happened quickly. No. Right. I mean, that, and that's really, I find that that's what happens everywhere I go around the country. I mean, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the, 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 you know, the government passed that, uh, gave itself a patent, but that's really not that important. It is that important because to be able to give themselves a patent, they had to do some research. You read the government's own abstract on patent number 6630507, you'll find that the government believed in all the things that they claim right now that they don't believe in. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, education is key. So you got to educate. I mean, look, even I, I taught a class at the University of Denver. I had 14 students register for my cannabis regulations class. These were, you know, 18 to 20 something year olds. They were hesitant to come in because what are they going to talk about? Well, we were talking about cannabis as adults, about policy, about science, about medicine, and they their eyes opened up. I've never heard anything like this before. These people are eager to learn about these things. You just have to give them right information that's not prejudiced or biased. And that's part of the problem too, as I think industry advocates tend to be a little bit too 
pushy in their bias, not because they're not correct, but because they want to see the change happen instead of just providing the information and let people decide for themselves. Right. And I think that that's one of the biggest things right there, just giving the people the information so that they can make a conscious decision for themselves or their family. You know, I'm out of time, almost out of time, but I want to ask you a couple more questions about, you know, what are, just so people understand who are tuning in and you've been doing, you know, legal on this for years now, what are some of the rules like in place right now for traveling, let's say with cannabis by plane or, or, or passing through, let's say an illegal state and your and you got some cannabis in your car, should people be worried? Um, you know, even traveling with cannabis, I mean, I wouldn't be, wouldn't take, you know, a, a ounce in my carry on or in my check luggage because they just still run dogs by, even though the dogs right now have the ability to really only go after bombs. But, um, a lot of them aren't trained or multi-trained to be able to, to, to find various forms of contraband at the same time. Um, what are some of the legal rules about traveling with cannabis? If you go from a legal state to a legal state, can you fly above them and land in a legal state with some cannabis with you? Well, remember, every time you enter into an airport, you're subjecting yourself to federal jurisdiction. So, but, but, so, so as a technical matter, um, that airspace would say, no, if you're traveling from one state to another, it's federally illegal. However, you have to think about if you're if you're determined to bring cannabis with you, I would say don't travel internationally with cannabis. We saw the Brittany Griner example as an extreme example. But by the way, that same thing has happened to so many people, including you know other NBA players traveling on the road, not, not to mention people that I'm sure we know that have just been traveling for businesses or conference or otherwise. So it's not wise to travel internationally with the but if you're looking state to state uh, and you understand that. Yeah, there's an element of federal legality that is going to color what you're doing if you're flying from Colorado to California, for example. But what are the repercussions? In Denver's airport and in many airports, it's just a couple of hundred dollar fine. They take it. It's effectively a misdemeanor. And, you know, you have to deal with that in court and you probably go to court and the court might dismiss the case anyway. Um, California would say you can travel from San Francisco to L.A. on, a, on an airplane with the cannabis because you're not crossing state lines and because it's legal in both jurisdictions. If you're driving, just make sure that the states you're driving through also don't have some sort of restrictive law. If I'm driving from Colorado um, through New Mexico into Arizona, it's probably okay because in each of those states, it's legal for me to possess it. But if I'm going through Utah to Arizona, um, uh, then that's another story altogether. So it really, a lot of it comes down to common sense and your risk tolerance, because if the federal government catches you uh, while traveling with three or four joints or a couple grams of cannabis, um, yes, you've intercepted it with federal law, but they refer that to local police. So then you're going to be subject to the local rules, the local laws, unless you're deemed to be trafficking large amounts that qualify for federal law. So just have common sense and understand that if you're going to a cannabis friendly jurisdiction, save your purchase or your acquisition for when you get there just to be on the safe side, because who wants to deal with the repercussions of a rogue uh, law enforcement agent who doesn't know what's legal and what's not, uh, and have to deal with potentially hiring a lawyer to deal with criminal charges, even if you get off on them. What's the point? Absolutely. Well, I will, for 100% complete disclosure, I will say that I have been stopped a couple of times in different places around the world, around the world. Uh, I made a mistake, uh, you know, almost like a Brittany Griner mistake years ago, flying through Germany, 
didn't really check my bag completely the way I should have before I flew and had a little bit with me there. But, you know, I tell you, that was crazy. Um, you know, I and my wife were traveling through. We were going through Germany and going to uh, Dvornik. And um, I had to go through that secondary train, uh, secondary screening in, in the airport. And I had made it all the way over to there. Didn't even realize I had a little teeny container of some some um, um, Keef that I had forgotten was there from a couple of weeks earlier. And um, got stopped, got pulled over. You know, it's one of these aggressive, you know, TSA people in Germany grabbed me. And then Interpol was called. Interpol came up to me. And, um, you know, I'll never forget this. It was this uh, 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 Interpol operation operative who was herself and two others that were in undercover. And um, the woman walked up to me, literally holding her smart device. And she had, uh, en route to see me, had already Googled me and realized that I was an advocate in the United States. And she came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Williams, uh, we just passed a law in Germany that makes cannabis illegal, uh, makes it legal. However, it doesn't go into effect until September. So I'm going to give you this back, but please do not use this in the airport and don't try to do that again. I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't even read it. I threw it in the garbage can right in front of us. I'm so sorry. I didn't even think I had it. I didn't even know I had it. She said, that's quite all right. And I went went on my merry way, went on to Dvornik. Everything was fine. Um, you know, so I have been in one of those situations, but I got to tell you that I was puckered up. Boy, you ain't kidding because I thought, oh Lord, I don't need to go to jail here in Germany for, for less than an ounce of, of Keith, which was crazy. Well, I, I had a CBD pen coming out of uh, Israel and mm -hmm. there was Israeli border guard agents, Israeli defense force people are very intimidating to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was a, a challenging one, but same thing, but keep your head, keep a, keep, keep a, a good head on your shoulders, make good decisions. And at the end of the yeah. day, you know, there's probably going to be flexibility, but not in a place like Russia. That's for sure. Hell no, not a place like Russia, boy. You got to check everything you're doing. I, it was very funny. Israel, interesting story. I literally was traveling through Israel and uh, I was going there actually to meet with Dr. Mishulam and I was meeting with some other representatives of the cannabis. I was meeting with a lady who was in part of the Knesset who was trying to pass cannabis for veterans in Israel. Um, and when I arrived, I mean, I'm standing in the airport and the people that were, I was coming there with, I'm at baggage claim. I'm getting ready. I even walked out of baggage claim. And, and this rep that was coming to pick me up for the conferences that I was being a part of literally comes walking and says, oh, look, we brought you a whole bunch. I was like, don't open that bag up in here. Are you kidding me? Let me out of here. And yet it was so funny. This guy walks in to pick me up and he's carrying like an ounce. I'm only going to be there for three days. And he's like saying, oh, I thought you might want this while you're here. I was like, what am I going to do with all this? I ain't smoking this in three days. <laughs> and, and and yet walking out of the airport, they stopped me, not for anything cannabis related. They stopped me because I happened to take an injectable medication for my MS. So they stopped me because I had like five vials of that in my bag. And they were saying, what is this? I said, read it. It's, it's a legal formulation. Matter of fact, it's even made here by a company out of your country called Teva. And they were like, oh, okay. They gave it back to me. But I was like, you know, here's a guy standing beside me. He got a full ounce of pot on him. You ain't said nothing about that, but you bugger me about a legal, you know, prescription medication. Are you crazy? So anyway, I, I agree with you, you know, pay attention. You have to really, really pay attention. Look, I'm almost out of time. What do you think is the most pressing issue that's facing the cannabis industry today? I think it's uh, it's got to be tax reform and federal legality in the United States. 
Okay. And, you know, you think the banking issue is going to kind of come to uh, change anytime soon? You know, we've seen it pass six times through the House um, in the uh, the safe banking and then uh, ultimately the CLIMB Act, which allows access to capital markets. It's a no brainer that if you enact these things, that this is going to pr produce an, an enormous economic benefit to the country, particularly if the economy's down. It's going to happen. The, the data supports it. It, it. it happens everywhere around the world. So the question is, which political party in the U.S. wants to seize that? Own the cannabis issue. By the way, I'm, I'm an independent, so I'll tell you, I think the Democrats have been terrible on cannabis policy. The Republicans have, have not been very good obvious for obvious reasons. But I think the Republican approach, if that could become the mainstream approach, it's about jobs, it's about states' rights, it's about individual freedoms. That's a notion that I think that both parties can embrace. But until then, you're looking at uh, both parties that don't want to touch it. They want to talk about it, but they don't want to actually do anything about it. But I think the Biden administration has got to pass uh, safe banking and the CLIMB Act before the end of, uh, of this Biden term, because I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and the economic outcome is determined. You know it's going to create an economic boom. It just will. We saw what happened in Canada, and that's a small fraction of what's going to happen in our public markets if this occurs. So it depends on which party has the political capital and desire to seize the issue. Uh, and that remains to be seen. Because you know what? If Trump was elected again, I think he would have pushed a medical marijuana program that models the, the German, the U.S. Pro, or the, the European program. I would agree with you. I mean, let me tell you something. I agree with you 100%. I keep saying this over and over again, though, though I have been one who says, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see much movement at the federal level for the next five or six years. I think I'm wrong. I think this upcoming election, I think there's people on both sides, and I'm like you, an independent. So people on both sides, I think, are thinking, you know, just like, you know, uh, uh, Biden understood during his last campaign, he and Harris stepped up and said, we're going to do something in the first 100 days. Yeah, bullshit. They didn't right. do anything. They just wanted to get some votes. Now, I think they're going to say it again. And this time, they're going to be held to what they say and going to be forced to do something and maybe even be forced to do something before the election so that they can have all those cannabis voters on their side. And you want them. You want those voters on your side. You can, and both sides do. So you might you might see the Republican side come out and do the same thing, depending on who runs. And I mean, you've got, at least we understand that even looking at man, whoever is at the top of the ticket, you look at DeSantis, you look at South Carolina, you know, they're trying to pass right now. So, you know, Nikki Haley and that group, under Carolinian, understanding that, you know, the people in her state are going to speak. Whoever runs for president on the Republican side, I think is going to actually figure out that, you know what, as this nation gets older and we got baby boomers who want it, we better do something. And so hopefully, keep fingers crossed, might something might happen right before we even know it, 2004. Well, the, the last thing on that I'll say is this. Think about this. When Obama was running against Mitt Romney, there was a debate here at the University of Denver. I was at that debate. And Romney was asked after that, that debate by a reporter from what was called the cannabis that at that point in time, it was a Denver Post, uh, uh, you know, uh, section that covered cannabis. He says, well, what do you think about the cannabis industry? What kind of reform do we need? And Romney looks him square in the eye and shakes his head and says, ask me about something real. 
They can't do that anymore, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. That means we've come a long way in a short period of time when Schumer and this this mace on the Republican side are pushing the issue. Uh, it's going to come up. And I agree with you. It's going to be sooner than later. But uh, politics always gets in the way. Absolutely. my friend. Well, look, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. If people want to reach out to you, can you give them some digits? Yeah, uh, 100%. You can find me uh, quite easily at uh, bobhoban.com. You can reach out through my website. Uh, you can reach out. Uh, through our social media, uh, LinkedIn, Robert Hoban, uh, and I'm at rhoban at clarkhill.com. Great, my friend. And look, I would love to have you back because you definitely schooled my audience today, especially on the issues of, you know, uh, all the, the analogs that are out there. And I know there's plenty more that you could school us on. And so I'd love to have you back. So anytime you want, anytime you got something to think about or you want to talk about, I'd love to chop it up with you. Okay. Sounds like a plan, Montel. I appreciate it. All right, my friend, you take care of yourself, be well, and make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.